Hey, uh, anyone here at Vertical for the first time ever? Anyone? Awesome. Awesome. Glad you made it. Welcome. Hey, uh, let me just tell you what Vertical is. Vertical is simply a once-a-week opportunity for you to come with several other students from Baylor. And our hope is that every Monday night you could get just a clear picture of Jesus. And I said this last week, but the hope is if you see just how beautiful Jesus is, you might want to spend the rest of your life with him. So that's our hope is tonight you might get a clear picture of Jesus. Before I get going with the message, uh, I just want to make a few announcements clear. I think Kendall did an incredible job. We are canceling Vertical next week because we believe so much in what's going to happen at the Farrell Center next Monday night. Crossroads is going on. Spread the word and be there. Bring your friends and be there for that. The other announcement I wanted to make, and this one's pretty near and dear to my heart, but one of my good friends, Brian Wallace, is here from a church in Austin called Austin Ridge Bible Church. That's the church uh, I actually worked at before I came to Vertical. And there's a cool thing going on at Austin Ridge for you seniors. If you are graduating and you don't know what you're doing yet, I want you to go back and I want you to talk to Brian after the service. He'll be at the next steps table. But the Ridge is starting up an 11-month residency program. And what this is is a full-time opportunity for discipleship and mentorship where you can have older people invest in you. And it doesn't matter if you're thinking about ministry or not. You might become a healthcare professional or a lawyer, something like that. But if you want to spend your gap year wisely, man, this would be an incredible opportunity for you to step into this position to have someone older invest in you and to get some life training in the name of Jesus. So highly encourage it. Check it out. Talk to Brian afterward. He'll be hanging out on uh, Common Grounds tomorrow if you want to set up a meeting with him. Cool? All right? Hey, glad you're here tonight. Let me tell you this. Uh, when I was in high school, middle school and high school, I ran cross-country and track. Any cross-country track people here? A few. All right. That's great. Uh, so you know what it's like to wear really short shorts. Okay, cool. Um, so when I was in high school, I loved to run cross-country and track. And uh, here's, here's the deal. Cross-country is not a great spectator sport at all because there's basically the start and then people disappear into the woods and come out 15 minutes later and that's pretty much all you all you see but um my dad was just this really extremely super supportive dad who videotaped every single one of my races and i always knew where he was on the course because he's middle eastern so he has a middle eastern accent and anywhere i'd be on the course i would hear Go, Timothy, go, go, go. And I was like, there's my dad. All right, that's him. And it was awesome because when I would watch the video later, the camera would shake profusely because he was so excited that his son was was running past. Anyway, uh, he videotaped uh, every race. And after every race, my brother and I, we, we would anxiously go home. And at this time, you'd have to plug your camera in with cables to the TV to watch the thing. And we would just eat it up and we loved it. Uh, there was one time, and I don't know why I remember this because it was so long ago, but there is one memory that I have of watching our cross-country videos, and I think I'll always 
remember it, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to be like, that's not very significant, but for some reason, it is stuck with me. There was this, uh, and I would show you the video, but I don't think you'd ever recover from seeing me in really short shorts. All right, that's just the bottom line. Uh, You just wouldn't recover. So anyway, I'll just tell you about the video, and you'll have to leave it at that. But I will never forget, my brother and I, we were sitting there, and we were watching the video. We were watching the start of this race. And something happened, but it was so fast. My brother and I looked at each other, and it was kind of this thought, like, did that really just happen? I don't, we we need to rewind it. And we we rewound the tape, and we put it in slow-mo. And sure enough, what we thought happened actually happened. And here's what we saw. Again, you're not going to think it's very significant, but it's very important to what we're talking about tonight. Here's what we saw. About 300 uh, pubescent men lined up on the starting line. The starting pistol went off and everyone took out in a dead sprint because that's what people do for a three-mile race. They're idiotic and they go out in a full sprint at the start. And so 300 men, uh, really boys acting like men, started running uh, down this field and they went around this uh, baseball backstop. And as the group of 300 people were running back toward the camera, there was a guy... That was in one of the top 10 positions that is running at full sprint. And then all of a sudden, he just stops and walks off the course very casually. I mean, no joke. He's just running, and then he just stops. I guess he had had enough. He's like, all right, that's it. And he just walked off. And you might say, well, that's not very significant. That probably happens all the time. The weird thing about it was that when he stepped off, he didn't, like, grab his leg like he had pulled a hammy. He didn't. He didn't start bending over like he was going to throw up. He didn't put his hands over his head like he was just exhausted. He didn't look extremely disappointed. It was just like he stepped off the courts and thought, ain't nobody got time for that. And then he just walked off and he was done. He was just done. And that was it. He stepped off the course and he walked away. And I don't know why, but I... I spent some time thinking, like, I wonder why. Like, I wonder why you just gave up. I wonder why you stepped off the course and just walked away. And I tell you that tonight because I think a lot of people go through the Christian life and end up doing the same thing. I, uh, the Bible refers to the Christian life as a race. And I see people, students especially, all the time, go through life walking with Jesus and then they just reach this point where they kind of step off the course and walk away. And whenever I see that happen, something in me always asks the question, I wonder what happened. Like, I wonder what happened that made them reach this point where they just kind of, they're tracking with Jesus, they're running with Jesus, and then they just kind of step off the course and walk away. Tonight we're going to be looking in John chapter 6, and what I'm going to share with you is what I believe to be the top three reasons that people kind of give up on Jesus. I want to phrase it in a few different ways, uh, because some people just flat out give up on Jesus, and then other people just slowly fade away from him. Another way to say it is that they just slowly let Jesus fade away out of their lives. They place Jesus on on the back burner. And Jesus just becomes a distant, not second or third, but maybe fourth, fifth, or sixth. 
in their life. I'm going to share with you the top three reasons that people kind of step off the course and walk away. And you need to be very familiar with these three reasons because I guarantee you, every single person here tonight, you're going to come to these intersections with Jesus. They're going to be very uncomfortable. And when you come to these intersections, you're going to have to answer the same question that Jesus' 12 disciples had to answer in John chapter 6. And here's the question. Do you want to go away as well? People are stepping off the course and walking away from Jesus all the time. So the question you're going to have to answer is this. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to step off the course and walk away? So if you have a Bible, turn with me. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. John chapter 6. Go ahead and locate verse 66. Just to give you a little background to this verse. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people with a fish and bread combo meal. And then sometime after that, he gives a sermon. And I firmly believe that this is the most unpopular sermon that Jesus ever gave. Because look at what it says in verse 66. It says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a bad day. That's a bad sermon. It's a bad sermon when afterward, many people, it doesn't say a few, it doesn't say one or two, it says many no longer walked with him. Some commentators believe that so many people left that there was not many more people than just the 12 disciples remaining. And at that moment, the 12 disciples came to this crossroads with Jesus, where Jesus asks them a question, and their answer to this question determines everything. If you remember last week, if you were here, we said that we were starting a series where we were going to look at three questions that Jesus asks in the book of John, because Jesus loves to ask questions. And his questions to us and our answers to his questions will determine everything about us. His disciples find themselves at this crossroads and Jesus looks them in the eyes and look at his question to them. In verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Guys, do you want to step off the course and walk away? And here's what you need to know. Jesus asked these questions to his 12 disciples, but this question wasn't just intended for the 12. This question is intended for every single person here tonight because you will come to these moments in your life, these crossroads, where you're going to have to determine if you want to step off the course and walk away. So here's what I want to do. I want to kind of rewind in Jesus' sermon, and I want to show you the three reasons that I believe that these people stepped off the course and walked away. And the reason that you need to know these things is the same reason people uh, walked away from Jesus 2,000 years ago are the same reasons that people in college today step off the course and walk away. So look back with me in verse 25. Verse 25, here's what it says in 25 and 27. We actually covered this uh, one of the first few weeks into the semester when we talked about Jesus in our I Am series. We talked about Jesus being the bread of life. Here's what it says in John chapter 6, verse 25. 
It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So just to remind you of kind of the order of events uh, preceding this, Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people afterward. Jesus makes his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee without the crowds knowing. The next morning, the crowds wake up, and the thought that they have is this. I wonder what Jesus is thinking for breakfast, because if he's doing something, we're interested. And so they begin to look for Jesus. They can't find him, so they send out a search party. They spend the day looking for Jesus. They ultimately end up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. And when Jesus sees all the effort that these people have gone to to find them, he kind of calls them out. He says, hey, guys, let's just be honest with each other. You're here not because you saw me do something ridiculously cool with some fish and bread yesterday. You're here because I hooked you up with some fish and bread and you're hoping that I'll do it again. And they don't argue. They're like, well, yeah, that's kind of true. Do you have some fish and bread? All right, because if you do, we're interested. That's why we came. These people, this is very important. These people believe that their greatest need was physical bread. That's what they believe. They believe that their greatest need was physical bread. That's why they went to all the effort. Jesus tries to redirect their focus. That's why he says, hey, don't work for the bread that perishes. Work for the bread that endures to eternal life. He tries to redirect their focus and kind of clue them in that their greatest need is not physical food. It's spiritual food, but they don't get it. They just think Jesus has some secret source of even better bread than the bread he gave them the day before. This kind of bread doesn't get moldy. It doesn't get stale. It never gets old. So these people are thinking that they are about to get hooked up with the best bread that they have ever had in their life. Imagine the disappointment Imagine the disappointment. These people believe that their greatest need is physical bread. These people believe they're about to get the best bread that they have ever tasted. And then Jesus tells them this in John 6, 35. He said, I've been telling you about bread. I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. Who comes, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Imagine how frustrating That would be. These people are so hungry. All they've had is bread on their mind. They show up and Jesus is like, I have bread for you. The bread that I have for you is even better than the bread I had for you yesterday. And they're like, man, they say in verse 34, give us this bread always. Like, Jesus, we'll just hang with you. You give it to us always. Every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we're in. He says, okay, great. Yeah, I'm the bread. It's me. Bon appetit. Imagine the frustration, imagine the disappointment when these people believed that Jesus was going to meet what they perceived to be their greatest need and all Jesus offers them is himself. Imagine the disappointment. 
Here's what I want you to think about. What do you believe is your greatest need right now? Think about that. What do you believe is your greatest need in life right now? If you're not sure, all you need to do is ask yourself this question. What is stressing you out right now? Like, what do you find yourself thinking about a lot? What do you find yourself worrying about? What do you find yourself giving a lot of your time to? Whatever that thing is, is probably the thing that you consider to be your greatest need. Maybe your greatest need right now, you're a senior. Maybe your greatest need right now is a a J-O-B. You need a job. Maybe you're one of those people who never feel settled when you're single. So your greatest need right now is a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe your greatest need is is healing, physical healing for someone that you love who is extremely sick. Maybe you're looking at your financial situation and you're realizing that you might not be able to afford to come to Baylor next year. And so your greatest need right now is money. Maybe you feel really lonely. Maybe you feel really isolated. And right now you believe your greatest need is a friend. Here's what I want you to know. God cares deeply about all your needs. He does. He cares deeply about all your needs. I love how Matthew positions God as a perfect father who delights in giving his children great gifts. That means God delights in providing good boyfriends and girlfriends. God delights in providing money. God delights in miraculously healing people. God delights in providing friendships. But you also need to know this. Jesus believes that your greatest need is him. Jesus believes that your greatest need is him. So there are going to be times in your life where you believe that your greatest need is a boyfriend or a girlfriend or money or a friend or physical healing. And all Jesus is going to offer you is himself. And in those moments, there can be serious disappointment. And in those moments, you're going to be prompted to answer a question. The question is this, do you want to go away as well? I think that that's one of the main reasons that people step off the course and walk away. It's disappointment in God. Disappointment is what comes when you believe that you have a greater need than Jesus. Because there will ultimately be times where Jesus doesn't provide you with what you believe is your greatest need. And he's only going to offer you himself. And in those moments, you cannot help but feel disappointed. I want to point one more thing out just in this section before we move on. It's, It's interesting what the people say to Jesus as he is telling them about this better bread. Listen to what. They say in verses 27 and 28, Jesus says this to them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. The people respond in verse 28 by saying this, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you know what they're saying? 
They're saying, what do we need to do to get God to give us this food? It's, it's basically what you say to yourself when you're standing at a vending machine. You're saying, okay, what, what numbers do I need to press to get the food that I want? That's really what they're saying. What numbers do we need to press for God so that he will drop this greater food that we really want? Have you ever acted as if God is a cosmic-sized vending machine? I mean, you would never say it like that, but we act like that all the time. We try and get this right combination that will hopefully prompt God to deliver what we believe is our greatest need. So we try different combinations. It's like a, it's normally a combination of, of Bible reading and praying more and being nicer and quitting bad habits and going to church more and just not saying bad things. We try these different combos and the hope is that if we get the combo just right, then Jesus will deliver what we believe to be our greatest need. It's an extremely frustrating day when we feel like we get the combo just right. We feel like we do everything that Jesus asks for us to do and all he drops down is himself. It's an extremely disappointing moment because what ends up happening is you begin to look around at other people who didn't give a rip about a combination. Yet they seem to have what you want. And in those moments, you will find yourself looking at God saying, you owe me. I did my part and you didn't do your part. And in those moments, you're prompted with a question. Do you want to step off the course and walk away? See, the problem in all of this thinking is the belief that you have a greater need in your life than your need for Jesus. Every single person here, your greatest need is your need for Jesus Christ. Period. But one of the main reasons that people in college will step off the course and walk away is you just don't feel like God came through for you. I would imagine that many of you, you really, this is what I see happen a lot, is that you you kind of play by the rules in high school. You kind of do the Christian thing in high school. And then you get to college and you've been doing the rule thing for so long that you kind of take inventory and you're like, what's in it for me? Like I've deprived myself of all these things. I haven't done all of these things when everyone else has been doing all these things. What is in it for me? God hasn't dropped down anything that I've wanted. He's only dropped down himself. So I'm going to step off the course and walk away. Look back at the text. Let me show you the second thing. Here's what it says, verse 35 again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up 
on the last day. This is a really significant passage in scripture because in this passage, Jesus is making a bold declaration about who he believes himself to be and what he believes his mission to be. Jesus says so many important things about himself. He first says, hey, I'm the bread of life. And we spent a whole sermon just talking about this. What Jesus is saying is, I am in the business of satisfying the deepest longings of your soul. You're longing for a love and acceptance and approval. You're longing for significance and control. You're longing for peace and pleasure. You're longing to be made right with, with a God for all of eternity. I am in the business of satisfying the deepest longings of your soul. But then he claims to have a special relationship with God the Father. He says, I've actually been given significant responsibility by God the Father. I am actually the bread of life that came down from heaven. Most human beings are trying to figure out how they're going to get from here to there. Jesus is saying, I actually came from there to here. I've been where you want to go. And then Jesus makes another uh, huge statement about himself where he says, whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. This is really significant because Jesus is saying, if you want to have eternal life with God in heaven when you die, it will have everything to do with me. He doesn't say that he is a slice of the bread of life, implying that there's other slices that can satisfy your need for eternal life in heaven. He says, I'm it. I'm the loaf. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. If you want to have eternal life in heaven with God, Jesus is saying it's going to have everything to do with me. Now watch the people's response. Verse 41, it says this, so the Jews grumbled against him. Why? Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? One of the reasons that these people are ultimately going to step off the course and walk away is simply because they cannot get on board with all of Jesus' claims. Everything Jesus claims to be is not something that they can get on board with. They can't get on board with the fact that Jesus has a special relationship with the Father. In fact, Jesus came down from the Father with a special mission. They can get on board with the fact that Jesus was, uh, he's from Nazareth, he's a son of Joseph and Mary, but they cannot get on, the fa- get on board with the fact that Jesus is declaring himself to be divine. Here's the reality. Every single person here tonight, whether you're a Christian or not, you will have to deal with the claims of Christianity as expressed in the Bible. You have to deal with them. I mean, you go to a Christian university where you have Bible class. You will have to deal with the claims of Christianity as expressed in the Bible. Let me just rattle through many of the claims of Christianity as expressed in the Bible. Let me just share a few of these with you. The Bible claims to be the word of God, which means it is to be considered true 
and trustworthy. It positions itself as true and trustworthy. The Bible claims that God is alive and he is a triune God. The Bible never uses the word Trinity, but the Bible positions God as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that somehow exist in one essence. That means Jesus himself was and is God. He wasn't just a good man or a prophet or a mighty spirit being. He himself was and is, in fact, God. The Bible claims that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. He's creator of all things. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, infinite, immutable, faithful, good, just, merciful, gracious, loving, holy, and sovereign. The Bible claims that we are all born sinful. We aren't born in neutral standing with God. We're born enemies of God as sinners. Therefore, in the eyes of God, there's no one who is good. There's no one who pleases God in their own efforts. There's nothing that we can do in our own effort to make ourselves right with God. Therefore, every single one of us without Jesus is deserving of the wrath of God. The Bible claims that Jesus is the only way to God in heaven. In his supreme love for us, uh, because man could not get to God, God came to man in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible claims that Jesus came to earth, lived a sinless life, voluntarily went to the cross to make payment for the sins of the world. Jesus was buried three days later. He rose from the dead as as a display that he had conquered sin and death in his payment for sin had been accepted. The Bible claims that salvation from sin is received solely through faith in faith alone in who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. The Bible claims that when we believe in Jesus, our salvation is secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible claims that God is a perfect father who takes pleasure in fathering his children every moment of their lives. The Bible claims that one day Jesus will return and we will spend all of eternity enjoying him and worshiping him together. This is what the Bible claims. And here's the, here's the good news, is there are actually facts about the Bible that in some ways validate its claims. The Bible isn't just some ridiculous book that people piece together, and I don't feel like I'm sharing new information with most of you, but uh, there's some facts about the Bible that really bring it validity. Uh, some of the facts that I really enjoy are the fact that the, the Bible is 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years across three continents and in three different language, three different languages, yet from Genesis to Revelation, there is consistency in message. There is a unified message from start to to finish. That is supernatural. Here's some other great facts that I love about the Bible or evidence for it. There are currently 5,686 Greek manuscripts in existence today for the New Testament alone. The approximate time, listen to this, the approximate time between the original writing and some of these 5,000 copies is less than 100 years. No other ancient writing comes close to having this type of historical evidence. The next in line is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad has 643 copies, and the time span between the original and the copies is 500 years plus. 
The internal consistency of the New Testament documents is about 99.5% textually pure. The 0.5% variation doesn't alter the message of the text at all. In addition, there are over 19,000 copies in the Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages. The total supporting New Testament manuscript base is over 24,000 documents. And this is incredible evidence that brings validity to the Bible. But you need to know that even with these facts supporting the claims of the Bible, these claims still take a measure of faith. They do. The Christian life is a life of faith. It is faith that is fueled by facts, but facts cannot replace faith. There is always a measure of faith. And I promise you, at some point in your Christian walk, especially in college, you might come to this crossroads where you begin to question, how do I know that what I've believed is actually true? And I wouldn't be surprised if you deal with serious doubts. But in these moments, you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to step off the course and walk away? Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? One of the main reasons that people step off the course and walk away is that they begin to deal with doubts that they have in regard to the claims of the scripture. And instead of studying to figure out more answers, what they do is they get paralyzed and then they just, they, they push Jesus out of their lives. And then they begin to say things like, well, I just don't feel that this is true. I don't feel that this is true. Anytime you're making definitive statements about your faith that involve the word feel, you have ventured into opinion and away from fact. Your beliefs about the scriptures and about God must always been, be rooted in fact. Your faith must always have a foundation of fact. But without it, I promise you, you will step up the course and walk away. Let me show you one more reason that these people, when they heard Jesus' sermon, step off the course and walked away. Look at what it says, verse 51 and following. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my Flesh. Now watch their response. It says this, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's a good question. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. What a killer sermon. This is what Jesus brings out. Hey guys, let me, just, uh, let me just say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Let's pray and get out of here. All right, any questions? It's weird. But just to clarify, Jesus, hopefully we all know this, he is not speaking literally. He's actually painting a very vivid picture 
of what it looks like to be a true believer in him. See, Jesus was going to go to the cross, and on the cross, his, his body was going to be crucified, and his blood was going to be shed. So when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what he is saying is, I want to invite you to partake of and personalize the sacrifice that I'm going to make on your behalf on the cross. That's what it truly means to be a Christian. It's to personalize the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. It's to look at his death, burial, and resurrection through the crucifixion of his body and the shedding of his blood. And it's to say, Jesus, I need your victory on the cross to become my victory. It's to personalize Jesus' sacrifice and to say, Jesus, I need your victory to be true of me. But let's be clear, there's a big difference between knowing about Jesus' sacrifice and personalizing Jesus' sacrifice. Watch how the people respond to his message. Look at what, they, look at what it says in verse 60. It says this, when, <clears throat> excuse me, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, this is a hard saying. What they're not saying is this is really uh, theological and hard to understand. That word hard in the Greek, it means harsh or offensive. They're saying, Jesus, this is really harsh and offensive language. Why? Because they take him literally. And Jews were not allowed to drink blood. I don't know why anyone would, let's be honest. But they were forbidden from drinking blood or eating any meat that still had blood in it. So when Jesus shows up and says, hey, guys, if you want to go anywhere, you're going to need to eat this and drink this. And they freak out. Let me show you why this is so disappointing. Because Jesus Jesus is communicating truth. Jesus is communicating a word that is to lead to life. His words are meant to lead people to life, but his words are misunderstood. And instead of believing that Jesus' words will lead to life, people begin to believe that his words won't lead to life. They will steal life from them. And here's the reality. When we misunderstand Jesus' words and we begin to believe that his words will steal life from us instead of lead us to life, I promise you, just like the people in this text, you will be tempted to step off the course and walk away. And when Jesus asks you the question, do you want to go away as well? Something in you might say yes. I mean, let me just give you a few examples. God's word instructs Christians to not date or marry people who are not Christians. It does. It says, don't be unequally yoked. Here's the problem. What if you meet someone right now and you're a Christian and they are not a Christian and they are willing to love you now. They're willing to hold you now. They're willing to commit to you now. See, Jesus' words in that moment will appear to steal life from you, not lead you to life. But what if Jesus just might have 
a uh, vision into your future and he can see the frustration and heartache that you might experience in marriage when the God of your salvation isn't even on the radar of the person that you have become one with. See, what if his words are meant to lead you to life, not steal life from you? I hit on this one a lot. I'll probably hit on it almost every single week. God's word calls us to forgive each other 70 times 70 times. 70 times 7 times. If you do the math, that's 490 times. Jesus is calling us to forgive each other 490 times. And since not one of us is going to keep count, and if you do, you're weird. If any of us, no, none of us are going to keep count. So Jesus' point is this, just always Forgive. Always forgive. And he gives, this is the frustrating part, he gives no exemption clauses. He just says forgive. Now you tell me, when you're severely wronged by your roommate or your friend or your parent or your ex, what feels natural in those moments is anger bitterness and resentment, it almost seems like that's what you're entitled to. So now Jesus's word to forgive appears to be words that will steal life, not lead you to it. But what if Jesus just knows that the person who will get hurt the most by your anger, bitterness and resentment is you? And what if he knows that you will never truly fully be able to grasp the depth of his forgiveness until you first express forgiveness to someone else? What if his words are meant to lead you to life, not to steal life from you? I'll give you one more example. God's word calls us to not get drunk and it calls us to keep the marriage bed pure. But what happens when it seems like the people who are having the most fun are the people who are getting wasted and hooking up? What happens when it seems like the people having the most fun and having the most plans are the people who are getting wasted and hooking up? In those moments, it appears that Jesus' words are stealing life from us, not leading us to life. So in those moments, and in the moments when you're angry and harboring bitterness and resentment, and in the moments when you want to date someone who's not a Christian, you come to this crossroads where you have to answer the question, do you want to go away as well? What if Jesus just knows that when it comes to getting wasted and hooking up, those things can give you life? They can. They can give you life but they will also steal life from you. We talked about this last week. What if Jesus just knows that those things will ultimately steal more life than they will give? So he's trying to protect you. What if his words exist to lead you to life, not steal life from you? See, I think so many college students step off the course and walk away when they begin to look at God's words And they see them as words that steal life instead of give it. Make no mistake, every single one of you are going to come to many crossroads where you're going to have to answer a question. And your answer to this question will determine everything about you. And this is the question. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to step off the course and walk away? My hope is that your response 
will be the same response that Jesus' 12 disciples had when he asked them this question. Let me just read you verses 68 and 69. That'll be the last two verses I read. Jesus asks them, do you want to go away as well? And here's what it says, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What would it look like when you come to these intersections to say, yes, Jesus, it doesn't feel like you are giving me what I believe is my greatest need. Yes, I am dealing with some serious doubts about my faith. Yes, I am looking at your word and I'm, I'm struggling to follow it just because I feel like there might be a better way. But Jesus, to whom shall I go? To whom shall I go? Because you are the one who has the words of eternal life. Do you want to step off the course and walk away? Jesus, if I did, I would have nowhere else to go. You are all I have. I'll close by just telling you another story about my days in cross country, as if you're itching to hear this. But a cross country race in high school is 3.1 miles. And here's how the miles kind of break up. The, the first mile is always the easiest because that's when you have the most energy and there's adrenaline flowing and, the, and you're surrounded by people running around you. And so you can compete with people and your teammates can kind of push you along. That's the easiest mile. That's when you feel good. Everything's kind of working properly, but then you hit mile two. And by mile two, the pack is kind of spread out. And if you're really unfortunate, you can get stuck in no man's land. No man's land is where the people are too far in front of you and too far behind you, and you're just running by yourself. So you have nothing to motivate you. That's when cramps kind of set in. Mile two is where you begin to question, why did I even decide to run cross country in the first place? Like this was stupid. I should have asked someone's opinion and counsel, but this was a terrible choice for a sport. But then you get to mile three. And then there's kind of the hope of the finish. There's the promise of the finish. And so instead of looking at the ground when you run, you begin to look up and you begin to look for that finish line. And as you look up and look at the finish line, you begin to run faster and you kind of dig down deeper and you find these reserves of energy that you didn't even know that you had. And then you finish and it's this glorious feeling like I just accomplished that. See, that's the normal Christian life for us. This is how the Christian life will be. You need to know that there's going to be miles of your walk with Jesus where it's just easy. And everything goes right. Everything feels right. There's adrenaline. There's people around you encouraging you and pushing you. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be easy. But then you're going to hit these miles of life where it feels like you're in no man's land. And you begin to question, why did I even choose to follow Jesus in the first place? This seems like it was a terrible decision because you're just kind of stuck in no man's land. And it hurts. And it feels lonely. And all you can think about is the questions and the frustrations you have. But you need to take hope because the finish line is coming. It is. 
And a day is coming where we will cross the finish line of our lives. And we will have the joy and privilege of spending eternity beholding Jesus and enjoying his presence. And in that moment, there will be fullness of joy. And everything in us will be complete. Everything will be whole. There will not be lack or need in us because Jesus is our greatest need. And in that moment, we will have all of him. So the finish is coming and it will be glorious. So you hang on. And as you go through college and you hit these intersections of life. Where you're tempted to step off the course and walk away. In those moments Jesus asks you, do you want to go away as well? My hope is that in those moments Jesus himself might give you the clarity and the wisdom to dig down deep and answer how the disciples did. Jesus, to whom shall I go? Let's pray together. I just want to ask you to process through what we're talking about right now. Maybe you're in a really good spot with Jesus right now. And maybe you're not. I mean, maybe you're, you're disappointed in him. Maybe you've been looking to him to satisfy what you perceive to be your greatest need. You've been asking him for a boyfriend or girlfriend. You've been asking him for a job. You've been asking him to heal a loved one that is very sick. You've been asking him for money. You've been asking him for a friend. And all he appears to be offering you right now is himself. And there's disappointment and there's frustration. In this moment, as he says, do you want to go away as well? My hope, my hope is that you just have this moment of clarity where you'd realize your greatest need is something bigger than all those things. Your greatest need is Jesus. Your greatest need is more of Jesus. When you have Jesus, your need is more of him. So confess your disappointment to him. Tell him that you're disappointed. Tell him that you're frustrated. He is God and he can handle it. But maybe you just come before him and say, Jesus, if all you're offering my if all you're offering me right now is yourself, may it be enough. May it be enough. Maybe you're just dealing with some serious doubts about your faith. That is okay. You need to hear me say that. It is okay to deal with doubts. God is God and he is big enough to process through your doubts with you. And maybe you just talk to God right now and say, God, I doubt. I do have doubts. God, would you lead me to the answers? Would you show yourself to me? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you give me a hunger for truth? And would you lead me to the truth? But God, it's possible to accumulate more and more facts. Ultimately, facts cannot replace faith. So God, increase my faith. Increase my faith. 
Maybe there's just some aspects in your life where you feel like God's word is stealing life from you instead of giving you life. Maybe there's areas where you're frustrated because you feel like his way isn't really the best way. I just want to invite you in this moment to process with God. Again, he's big enough to deal with your frustrations. Talk talk with him about it, but just declare, Jesus, would you give me your mind? Would you give me the ability to see that your way is the best way? Help me to assume the best of you. Rip out the skepticism from my soul, the skepticism that makes me think that you're trying to steal life from me instead of lead me to it. Maybe you're here tonight and you're realizing who Jesus is for the first time. That Jesus Christ is the one who has come to stand in between us and the wrath of God. Jesus Christ himself allowed himself to be crushed under the wrath of God. He rose from the dead. He made payment for our sin and his payment was enough. And when we express faith in Jesus Christ, we are made right with God. If you've never been made right with God, if you've never expressed faith in Jesus, if you've never invited Jesus to come and be your Savior from sin, if you've never invited him to come into your life and to begin to lead you through life, then I encourage you tonight to make that decision. He is a loving Father who longs to lead you through the rest of this life and all of eternity. guys are going to lead us in one more song but this time is yours just to do business with the Lord in the quietness of your own heart Lord Jesus we love you we thank you for this time move in our lives Lord I pray for these few hundred college students I pray that 10 years from now 20 years from now they would be running hard toward the finish line I know that statistics say that so many of them will step off the course and walk away. I pray your protection around this group of students, that they would be students who run hard for you and pull people along with them. I pray in Jesus' name.